Masters in Business is brought to you by Proper Cloth, the leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. It's somebody I've known for actually a good couple of years. His name is Simon Lack. He's probably best known for the book, The Hedge Fund Mirage. He's written several others. Funny story, which we talk about in the podcast portion. I get invited to speak somewhere, and I really don't want to talk to this group because they're annoying. And I, I decide to do a little counter-programming, and I know they're very, very big and fairly ignorant hedge fund investors that can't figure out why the returns have been so terrible. It, they think it's something they're doing wrong. And so I create a presentation called Romancing Alpha, Forsaking Beta, and one of the big sources I use in the book was Simon's um, hedge fund mirage based on the strength of that presentation, which was really me being um, rude. Uh, I get invited to speak at um, uh, the the Kennedy School of uh, Socially Responsible Investing a couple of years ago, and I make a presentation about why beta for many institutional investors is better than alpha, who else is presenting at the same uh, conference but Simon Lack? And we chatted up a conversation. And ironically, we each were citing each other's research. It was it was pretty funny. I strongly recommend the book. He pulls no punches, especially given what he did uh, in his earlier career, which gave him a front row seat to what was going on in hedge funds. I could wax on for much longer about this, but really he is so knowledgeable and full of so much information rather than me continuing to babble. With no further ado, my conversation with Simon Lack. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. I have a special guest today who I have been looking forward to sitting down and chatting with for a long time. His name is Simon Lack. He spent 23 years with J.P. Morgan uh, prior to founding SL Advisors in 2009. His career at J.P. Morgan was spent uh, doing fixed income derivatives and forward FX trading before he ran the investment committee in charge of allocating over a billion dollars to hedge fund managers, as well as founding the J.P. Morgan incubator funds and a number of private equity vehicles that took economic stakes in emerging hedge fund managers. That experience led him to write the first of his three books called The Hedge Fund Mirage, The Illusion of Big Money and Why It's Too Good to Be True. His subsequent books, Bonds Are Not Forever and Wall Street Potholes, are, are both must-reads. Simon Lack, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you, Barry. Great to be here. So it's I've been looking forward to chatting with you, and I have so many things um, to go over with you. Let, let's start, given what's going on in the world of fixed income and the Federal Reserve, let's start with your book on bonds and, and talk a little bit about um, uh, bonds. Interest rates go all the way back to 1800 BC. That's about 4,000 years ago. How important are interest rates for consumer spending, 
credit, and the overall economy. I mean, critical, right? I mean, maybe the most important economic variable out there is interest rates and people getting a fair return on their money. And uh, From yeah. the investment side or from the consumer side or I both? I think both. From the investment side, certainly, but obviously low rates stimulate demand, allow consumers to borrow money to buy things as well. So it's, it's critical. I mean, it's probably the most important variable. So here in the United States, we as a nation have pretty much set rates for much of the globe, taking rates down to such low levels in the early 2000s really helped set the table for a global financial crisis. Now the U.S. is a little out of step with Europe and Japan in that QE is over, ZERP is over, we're embarking on a rate-raising regime. The rest of the world is still cutting, still doing their version of QE. Does the United States still set the interest rate for the world? I mean, to a large degree, certainly impacts the emerging world and, and clearly sets its own rates. And it's a great situation for the U.S. to be because the financial crisis came about through too much debt. Mm -hmm. And the solution to too much debt is low rates. And I've often said to people that if Janet Yellen or Ben Bernanke before her had got up and given a speech and said, hey, listen, here's the deal. We've borrowed too much money and we're just going to keep rates really low and transfer real wealth from savers to borrowers. If they'd given that speech, monetary policy would have been as it's been. Mm -hmm. They haven't given the speech, but you've had the outcome that's consistent with that. Low well, rates the, are in our self-interest. Well, the political pushback to that explicit statement would have been pretty fierce. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think that although, you know, in my book, I'm negative on bonds, it's not because we think bond yields are going to go up sharply. I think you're going to see rates lower than they should be from an investor standpoint, for a long time. I mean, the return on bonds is just inadequate to justify putting money into them. So wanna, I want to stick with the concept of, of the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank setting rates for the world. In, in your book, you actually write, and I guess this is a little bit of a forecast or certainly is looking forward a number of years, ultimately the United States may find that it can no longer set its own interest rates. Explain. It's possible. It's possible. We have a, you know, a very uh, bad indebted position, and under most forecasts, it's only going to get worse. And eventually, it's quite possible that other countries will decide what rates they'll lend us money at. But I think it's actually, although that's a possibility and it's something to be worried about, I think it's more likely that we'll continue to set rates and we'll continue to set rates lower than they really should be for the interests of the lenders. And, and you know, I have Interest of the lenders, meaning to avoid defaults and make sure lenders get Yeah, repaid. to get a fair return. And so I explore this idea of populism in the bond book. And a couple of years, uh, the book's a couple of years Way ahead of now. the curve. Way, hopefully, ahead of the curve. And here's the thing, right? We've had this transfer of wealth from one generation to the next. The baby boomers have basically borrowed a lot of money to pay entitlements, and mm -hmm. the next generation is going to be left to pay for that. So now- just so we got a new president, and just suppose interest rates went to ten percent. Just suppose the Chinese Huge and the stock. Japanese sure. started selling bonds. What do you suppose President Trump would say to those guys? And I think he'd say, "Hey, listen, if you want to keep selling bonds, I'm just going to cut the interest rate in half on what we pay you." How's fixed, that work? Weaponized fixed income instruments? Is that it's, what we're talking about? You know what? About? I mean, it's it's not something that's at all on the horizon today. But my point is that the moral obligation to repay what's been borrowed with fair value is going to become more and more tenuous over time because the people who are repaying the debt are not the ones who made the decision to borrow. That makes and sense. I think you're going to see that connection weaken 
and it's going to be at the expense of the people who own the debt. Let me push back a little bit on this and and just observe there is a global shortage of high-quality sovereign paper like U.S. Treasuries. We haven't been doing the sort of tax and spend or tax and borrow like we used to. We haven't been doing the big infrastructure projects. It seems that demand for quality paper absolutely overwhelms the supply. If the Japanese or the Chinese or other holders of U.S. Treasuries decide to suddenly hit the bid at once, how hard is it to imagine that all of that paper just gets sucked up by foundations, pension funds, and everybody else it who's It could be. For it? I mean, you know, they've each got over a trillion dollars. And, mm-hmm. and as a practical matter, it's hard to see how you could sell that sort of amount in a short period of time. But the Chinese, of course, have been reducing their holdings recently. Mm-hmm. I think part of Without the, much impact, too. Yes, it's pr- they're letting in- things roll off and they're not mm-hmm. you know, bidding in auctions the way they were. So it hasn't caused really any discernible disruption to this point. So I think that's true. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Simon Lack. He is the author of The Hedge Fund Mirage, The Illusion of Big Money and Why It's Too Good to Be True. And I have to reiterate for listeners that you spent uh, 23 years at J.P. Morgan. Part of that time was you sitting on an investment committee that was responsible for allocating over a billion dollars in hedge uh, in money to hedge funds and emerging market uh, emerging managers, and you had a front row seat to really the emergence of hedge funds as a major set of players in the market. I mean, it was so cool because in the early 90s, that's when I first started investing in hedge funds, sitting on that committee, and it was a very obscure backwater. And you'd mm-hmm. go and see these uh, very talented people in a small office with very complex strategies, with a leverage and Cayman vehicle, and it all sounded quite risky. And banks were not doing that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were really sort of pioneers in, in terms of allocating proprietary capital to that. And it was so cool. I mean, there's never a boring meeting with a hedge fund manager. Each one of them is interesting in their own way. And, of course, the industry just completely took off. And in the early 90s when we were doing that, the markets were very inefficient and you could make some very, very attractive returns. Mm -hmm. And as in most things in investment, you know, popularity is eventually going to kill it. And that's what happened over the last 10 to 15 years. Let me put a little flesh on, on the bones. And this comes right from the hedge fund mirage. In 1997... AUM for all of hedge funds was $118 billion. Ten years later, by 2007, it was $2.1 trillion, And last year, we just crossed $3 trillion. Right. So despite all the talk about this is the end of the hedge funds, they've been underperforming, everybody knows the fees are too high, they ac- continue to accumulate massive amounts of capital. And it's an extraordinary disconnect by generally public pension plans. I mean, those are the those are the big source of capital today for hedge funds, not so much high net worth investors. And they what they do is generally investors will understand that small hedge funds are better than big ones. I mean, mm-hmm. it can be expensive to have a portfolio of small hedge funds. You need a lot of them. They also know that any big hedge fund they look at was better when it was smaller. That's why it's big today. There are inefficiencies that can only be With identified. Right. You can't put $20 billion into right. this not And so niche. they miss the obvious third step, which is that a small hedge fund industry was better than a big one. And I would challenge any institutional investment hedge funds today 
to ask themselves, what's the optimal size of the hedge fund industry? And and generally, those investors don't even contemplate the question. They don't right. think of it in terms of any sort of finite pool of arbitrage-type profits to be exploited. And it's a huge uh, disconnect. It's a huge error, and they're getting the results that they deserve for such uh, shallow analysis. The famed short seller Jim Chanos, who himself runs a hedge fund, Kinecos Associates, was a guest on the show and he said when he launched his hedge fund, and I think it was sometime in the 80s, he goes, there was a couple of hundred guys. They all generated alpha. Now there's 11,000 hedge funds. Those same two or 300 guys are the ones generating the alpha. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, but not a whole lot, is it? I mean, the problem is that it's very hard to forecast who's going to do well mm -hmm. you know, ahead of time. So there's always going to be happy clients, and there's always going to be hedge funds that do well. But hedge fund performance is mean reverting. And so you have a set of investors who very largely look at performance to decide where to invest. I mean, I, I sat in so many meetings with hedge fund managers, and you have the whole discussion about uh, security selection and portfolio construction and so on. Manager leaves your caucus, and we talk about it. And then somebody says, yeah, no, what, he was up 15% <laughs> last year. Yeah, he's pretty good. Yeah, I like him. He's pretty good. Right, as or opposed to if he anyone up 50%. You want to take your money off of that. Yeah. And so hedge fund, so you've got this thing where hedge fund investors are helplessly momentum driven. Right. Hedge funds are mean reverting investments. This is never going to be a good combination. They're always buying what worked yesterday, and it's actually less likely to work tomorrow. But they're generally institutional investors in hedge funds are not that sophisticated in my experience. My head of research gave me a little tidbit, which I found fascinating. In America today, there are more hedge funds than Taco Bells. Amazing. Do do we have either too many hedge funds or not enough Taco Bells? Well, what um, What's the takeaway from I, this? I think you get better value for money, Taco Bell. There's no, no <laughs> question about that. Given the choice, I'd pick the Taco Bell. So here's the fascinating thing about this. There are a small group of, of the alpha generators that Chanos referred to, and whether it's Jim Simons or Cliff Asness or uh, D.E. Shaw or Steve Cohen or go down the list, the concept of the significantly outperforming manager seems to keep everybody else in pursuit of that alpha. They're willing to forsake beta in order to chase alpha. Is it just that simple? It's a problem with the accounting treatment that public pension plans use, and it's a little bit of an obscure issue. But basically, with a pension fund normally, you use a corporate bond rate to figure out what your liabilities are. Mm -hmm. Pension plans use the expected return on their investment portfolio. Which is a made-up number. It's Yes, it's an estimate, right? And that's the accounting standards that government entities have to use. And the result is it biases them towards hedge funds because of their historic performance. Let, let's put more flesh on this. So if you're a public pension fund at, let's use New Jersey as an example, because they're such a mess anyway. So the New Jersey pension fund sets up what their expected returns are, and they create that number by saying, here's the historical returns of stocks, here's the historical right. returns of bonds, and ooh, look how giant the our, our expected returns are for hedge funds. And that means that New Jersey has a smaller tax obligation to put money into the state pension funds. That's entirely correct. And so taking hedge funds out would cause their unfunded position to be worse mm -hmm. and put more pressure on the governor to add, you know, to raise taxes. Even though hedge funds have been, as a group, have been significantly underperforming mutual funds and certainly underperforming the index, aren't we just creating a giant, bigger problem 
down the road, aren't we just kicking the can? Yeah, the, the account is totally wrong. And in fact, the other end of that is if a, if a pension fund owned treasury bills, which mm. they wouldn't, but if they did and they pay, what, a quarter percent, and that affects their expected return and the discount rate on their liabilities, if they burned the cash that was in those treasury bills... As opposed they, to keeping the... As opposed, if they literally, if they burned the cash, fire. it would drive up their expected return because cash is a drag. And that higher expected return would translate into a lower present value of their obligations. And so they'd actually look as if they're in better shape, even after destroying some of the assets that they would use to meet those obligations. And it's obviously, uh, you know, an unrealistic example, but the math is what it is. You put in an asset with a high expected return, it makes your funding position look better, regardless of how those assets do. That's astounding. And so it's a huge problem. And it's unlikely to be a crisis because it unfolds over time. Very But slowly. it's to the cost of taxpayers in any state, including New Jersey, where I live, who have that. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Simon Lack of SL Advisors. He previously spent 23 years with J.P. Morgan, uh, where he spent a good part of his time allocating money to hedge funds and other alternative investments. Let's talk a little bit about uh, something that has come up in one of your books, Wall Street Potholes, uh, about what is now called the fiduciary rule. When, when we look at people like your attorney or your accountant or even your doctor, they're all obligated by law to serve your interests. Why shouldn't financial advisors have that same obligation? Yeah, I mean, it's a fair question. I think that a lot of investors think they are dealing with a fiduciary when they're really not. And I think that the easier solution is to just ensure fair disclosure, that mm -hmm. if you're not a fiduciary, that your business card says, I'm not a fiduciary. Because there's also a big segment of the investor market who perceives that dealing with a fiduciary is more expensive because a fiduciary is going to charge an asset fee. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of investors who say, look, I don't want to just pay you a fee every quarter just for my money sitting now. I want to pay you a fee when I do a transaction, mm -hmm. which is the non-fiduciary model. And I think that the regulations should be flexible enough to allow both of those to exist. But I certainly think it should be disclosed. People should know whether they're dealing with a fiduciary or not. What, what about 12B1 fees where advisors and 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 we you know we run into a nomenclature title issue when we have brokers advisors registered representatives go down the list of names not all of these people are are fiduciaries and some of these people are both brokers and fiduciaries depending on what hat they happen to be wearing at that moment it it's still relatively complicated isn't it it's complicated for people to understand and and so it's a very, very highly regulated industry, Barry, as you know. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for me to believe that even more regulation is the answer. It should be just explained clearly to people. So this you're, is what you're, you're in doing. favor of transparency and disclosure, not full-on fiduciary obligations. Right, but disclosure doesn't mean that it's buried in a document. Disclosure means it's on your business card. Oh, it's, really? It's, I mean, really, it should be really so clear. If I'm, uh, so I've... I've previously had a Series 7, which I gave up, and I've also had a 65. The Series 7 is the brokerage license. The 65 is the advisory license. And I found complying with all of the rules as an advisor, the fiduciary standard, is incredibly simple. The governing question is, what's in the client's best interest? You have a lot more room as a broker to do things, 
But the compliance is much more complicated. That's absolutely right. And in my business, I'm a fiduciary. And mm -hmm. it's dead simple. You just do what's right for the client. As you say, the broker-dealer model, where you are not, where you have the lower standard, there's so much potential for conflict. So there's right. so many more rules and regulations so, around so that. So let, let's talk about that a little bit. How, If you want to have a disclosure obligation on non-fiduciaries, do you simply want their business card to include the word non-fiduciary? Is it that simple? I mean, maybe it would say, you know, my responsibility is to act as an agent of the company I work for. Some wording, non-fiduciary might be an emotive And you're telling me term. that wouldn't be in six-point tiny text? Well, you know, they can regulate, the SEC regulates font size as well. They do, they so, do. So I'm thinking about things like 12B1 rules where... Mutual funds, and this goes way back to to when this wasn't an especially lucrative business. Um, mutual funds were paying brokerage firms for carrying their product line, just like various food companies pay for shelf space in a supermarket. Hey, you want to be eye level? You want to be at the end of the the row? You don't want to be on the bottom shelf in the middle? You're lost. So various fund families would pay these these fees, and it really wasn't well understood and whatever disclosure there was were buried in in pages and pages of fine print nobody really understood that and so the disclosure can always be better but also investors have a responsibility to invest the time to understand that sure. i mean it doesn't have to be that expensive to invest money and you don't have to be be paying 12b1 fees or loads you know, we run a mutual fund in my business, and you can access it very cheaply through Schwab and Fidelity mm -hmm. with iShares with no upfront fees, or you can access it through a financial advisor where there'll be some fees. And so it really it's up to the investor to decide, do I want to go into this fund through an advisor and pay for him for the advice, mm -hmm. and that may be justified, or am I happy doing my own research? And I think that the, you know, the vast majority of retail investors don't do enough hard work and research on who's going to be investing the money and how and the economics around that. They're, they're so focused on researching an individual stock, they forget that there's alpha creation outside of just assets. So we call that organizational alpha. It's absolutely right. I mean, a, a case in point is, you know, we, we specialize in energy infrastructure mm -hmm. and there's $50 billion of mutual funds and ETFs that are taxed as corporations. And so only 65% of the return on those assets goes to the class. Why 35. not an MLP or something like that? That's I mean, that's so investors exempt. are paying, they're investing in funds where only two thirds of the return goes back to them. And I can tell you the vast majority don't even realize that they're subject to this tax. And it just shows that they don't read the prospectuses. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Simon Lack of SL Advisors. He spent 23 years in the trenches at J.P. Morgan, where, amongst other things, he allocated a ton of money to various hedge fund managers and uh, founded a few incubator funds that specialized in emerging managers. Let, let's talk about your most recent book, Wall Street Potholes. You are very critical of the industry where we ply our trades. Tell me uh, what the pushback to the book was. I think generally it's been well received. Mm -hmm. I mean, Wall Street's got mostly honest people, but not everybody. And it's certainly a very expensive place to do business at its worst. Mm -hmm. And so the goal of that book 
was to try and educate the clients, not to get Wall Street to change what it's doing, but make the clients better educated so they can be more discriminating and ask better questions about what they're paying for. I'm I'm so glad you you said that because I've said this to people and they look at me like I have two heads. My reputation has been a critic of Wall Street. And when I say most of the people I know who work in finance are completely honest, some of them have their compensation system misaligned. Right. But it's always just a handful of bad... Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, like you, I've got a lot of friends in the business, right? These are honest people. I mean, it's not that the industry is dishonest. You get some bad actors and you get, I think, you know, complexity and insufficient research by investors and you get people being charged too much for things or inappropriate products. And, and the subsequent effects when people are dishonest in this industry are outsized. It's billions yes, of dollars. Yes, of course. And the spillover effect of the real economy can be very Definitely. substantial. Yeah. So let's talk about, about some of the potholes you reference in the book. Non-traded REITs. Let's discuss this. A security that should not exist. It's a disgusting product. <laughs> it really I mean that Why do might you say be this? that might be one of that might be the worst investment that could ever be sold to a retail clients. Really? So the fees, <laughs> fifteen points. I mean, if you think hedge funds are expensive, fifteen points of upfront fees. Mm-hmm. Now I saw uh, one piece of uh, right. Not two and twenty, fifteen. Fifteen percent of your money. You put in a hundred dollars, you got eighty five dollars on day one. That's amazing. Working for you. I saw one. But at least it's liquid and you could sell it anytime you want. Yeah. I saw one piece of research saying non traded REITs, which of course are not liquid and right. can't be sold. I'm being sarcastic. I understand. And non traded REITs are better than the publicly traded REITs because they have less volatility. Sure. And they have less volatility because the prices don't move because they're not traded. And My so, house has no volatility so it doesn't trade every so, tick. Yeah, so, so this fellow uh, said that the illiquidity of non-traded REITs benefited the long-term investor because it prevents you from making an impulsive and self-destructive decision to sell it because you can't. And it's so stupid. <laughs> I mean, it's so self-serving. I couldn't believe that this fellow would There's even There's much put less that volatility. Uh, you know, that's we build a gate in that prevents you from selling yes. this for your own for your good. own good. That's for your hilarious. Good. And then, of course, littered with conflicts of interest. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be that if you tell investors how many ways you're going to screw them, it's okay to go and screw them. Disclose. Disclose it. So right. it'll say, well, here's how you're going to lose your fortune. So even though a REIT is supposed to invest in real estate, they charge you additional fees to buy real estate, to manage it, and to sell it. There's extra incentive fees paid to the management. There's, really? there's granting of extra shares to the management. I mean, it's a utterly dis- – anybody who has sold non-traded REITs honestly should not feel that good about what they've been so doing. So two questions about this. And, and by the way, uh, I've had some friends who have written about it very, very negatively, very disparagingly. Two questions. First, how much money is in non-traded REITs? Oh, today? I don't know. It's going to be in the – it's in the My billions of in dollars. The, it's going to be in the hundreds of billions. Oh, really? It's I think that it's, much? Yeah, I think it's going to be in the low hundred. My guess would be a couple hundred billion dollars. And I may be confusing this vehicle with another one, but wasn't non-traded REITs originally set up for a very, very unique and specific purpose, and now it's just been completely morphed into something else? Like, uh, wh- who, who set... What was the thinking behind the original non-traded REIT? I think... I don't know the answer, but I believe that they are sort of arbitraging the regulatory system because mm-hmm. non-traded REITs are registered securities. And right. When they're registered, they could be sold to anybody. 
But by being, no adequate, no accreditation requirements, no any, no suitability any, issues, nothing. For your suitability requirement, but they're, but basically they're they're public securities. Mm -hmm. But because they're not publicly traded, they don't draw any research because there's no uh, commissions. Uh, gotcha. And so if you're going to design a security that really does fleece investors, you don't want sell side research to write about it. So if it's not traded, there's no commissions. There's no incentive to write research about sure. it. So you can stay in the shadows. Because who's, there's no money to be made being critical of non-traded risks. Has the SEC looked into making these? The uh, SEC, to their credit, has an investor alerts page on their website, which has non-traded REITs on there. Don't buy this, says so, the SEC. So you could ask your <laughs> in investment advisor, do you push products that are the subject of an SEC investor alert? Mm -hmm. And if yes, why? That would be a fair question. That, that is, is a fair question. Right? Let's talk about structured notes. Why? What are structured notes, and why are they rarely the best choice? So structured notes are basically uh, securities that give you exposure to the return on an asset class, generally with some uh, barrier or some protection against losing mm -hmm. more than a certain amount of money. Right. And, of course, structured notes are created by Wall Street banks, issuing them and then hedging the risk out generally with options. And sure. so you can always create the same exposure yourself with options if you want to and you know much how cheaper, to do it. Much, much safer, cheaper. No counterparty risk. No counterparty risk because there'll be three to five points of fees that are taken out that are very hard to discern mm -hmm. after you've done the transaction. And so almost anything you can do with a structured note, you could do more cheaply elsewhere. So a previous guest was Ken Fisher of Fisher Investments. And if you go anywhere on the internet, you'll see Ken's ads. I hate annuities, but not all types. Click here to find out why. Tell me what your thoughts are on both fixed and variable annuities. I mean, annuities generally are terrible because once you're in, you can't get out. Mm -hmm. And you can't see what the fees are, right? It's not even visible to you what the fees are. And there's exit costs if you want to cancel it. And you can't see what the return's going to be relative to the index. So they're horrible products. And of course, the people who issue annuities are just investing your money in stocks and bonds to create that return, taking out several points of fees in, in the process. People don't realize an annuity is just a wrapper around whatever portfolio yeah, you, you yeah, want it to be. Exactly. By the way, if you look at um, the nonprofit version of 401ks, 403bs, and you drill down into uh, what's offered for teachers at various public schools, it's something like 70 plus percent are annuities. And the only, the best reason to own an annuity is because you've already exhausted all your other tax deferrals. Mm -hmm. But a 403B is a tax deferred entity. Why are you putting a tax deferred entity in a tax deferred entity with a giant fee up appalling. front? It's it, appalling. It, it's out That's there. That's the sort of thing that gives Wall Street a bad name. Uh, it, it's, People it's, shouldn't be Although doing this that. is mostly insurance, not so much banks. It's true. It's true. That's and insurance And there's a companies. proper usage of annuities, but I assure you that is not it. I agree. Absolutely. Um, so, so what about high-frequency trading? You've, you've called it a tax. Other people, Bill McNabb of Vanguard, says it, there's a way to work within it. It narrow spreads and makes everything cheaper. I, I tend to be more in your camp. Someone's got to pay for that, and it's really the investor. Yeah, I mean, it's a very complex topic. I thought Michael Lewis wrote a fantastic book about that with Flash, Flash Boys. Boys. Yeah, yep. what a, what a, I mean, he's a terrific writer anyway. But um, there may be some liquidity benefits from high-frequency trading, but the fact that it's, in many cases, uh, based on faster access to the markets and, and using connectivity and fiber optics to beat you to the price. I mean, Michael Lewis goes through the example of essentially front running, HFT mm -hmm. algorithms, front running 
you know, a human-driven order. I mean, if a human was doing what these algorithms are doing, it'd be illegal. And so clearly they shouldn't be allowed to do that. In, in, Flash, in Flash Boys, he describes as soon as you come out of the Holland Tunnel on the New Jersey side, opposite Wall Street, is a whole run of buildings, and they're essentially ghost buildings just filled with floors of servers. And the reason they're there is it's physically closest to right. Wall Street without right. actually being in Manhattan. You can actually get space because the latency, the closer you are, the faster the signal. It, it's the speed of light. Yeah, and the New York matters. Stock Exchange renting out space for servers to reduce latency mm-hmm. is clearly not in the public interest. I mean, I think the New York Stock Exchange should be utility. It should never have been converted into a for-profit entity couldn't, anyway. Couldn't possibly agree more. Let, let's talk about ledger, leveraged ETFs. I really am interested in this three-time leveraged inverse S&P fund. Tell me why I'm an idiot for wanting to buy that. I mean, I, there's <laughs> no way that anybody achieves their investment objectives with, with two or three times levered uh, ETFs. And in mm-hmm. fact, they're designed, if you read through the prospectuses, it tells you that they're designed to eventually go to zero. So because they, of, explain be, why, because people really don't understand it's, this. It's because of the negative effect of compounding. It's sort of like if you imagine a security goes up by 10%, mm-hmm. so you buy a security at $100, goes up by 10%, $110. If it goes down by 10%, it goes to 99 So it's mm-hmm. gone up and down by 10%, but you're a dollar worse off. Right. That's what compounding does. We have been speaking with Simon Lack of SL Advisors. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around and check out the podcast extras where we continue chatting about all things financial and Wall Street. Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Hey, guys, let me ask you a question. Do you have trouble finding dress shirts that fit? Well, thanks to Proper Cloth, ordering custom shirts has never been easier. At propercloth.com, you can literally order a high-quality, perfect-fitting custom shirt in less than five minutes. Create your custom size by answering just 10 simple questions. No need for measuring tape or trips to the tailor. Perfect fit is guaranteed. Remakes are completely free and expert staff are standing by to help. For premium quality, perfect fitting shirts, visit propercloth.com. Custom shirts made smarter. Welcome to the podcast. I don't know why I do that. I do that every time. Simon, thank you so much for doing this. I've been looking forward to this. It's great to be on back. For a long time. And, and a little background... I have to share the story because it's it's so true. I I won't mention the name of the group, but there's a wealthy group that is notorious for inviting people to speak to present to 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 their conference, and they don't want to pay anybody for it. And my, you know, if you're a nonprofit, if you're a school, I, I've spoken. We actually met. Yes, at the of Ken- course. We yeah. met at the Harvard Kennedy we School. We did. Yeah. I've spoken at NYU, Columbia, MIT, uh, University of Washington. I've spoken all over. If you're a nonprofit, I don't feel the need to stick my hand in your pocket. If you're a billion-dollar entity and you're not a client and I want to, you want me to come chat, I'm happy to just share, yeah, that's share fair some enough. of the— Right? I, I think that's pretty— I'm with you. So this group was hounding me. I don't remember what happened, but for whatever reason, uh, maybe it was Bailout Nation. or uh, For whatever reason, suddenly 
my phones are lighting up. And I, I, I know their audience. I know who their clientele is. Very, very wealthy people who I think should read your book because their 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 capital is malinvested, misinvested, and they don't. Uh, Professor Meyer Statman would say they're investing for expressive reasons, not utilitarian return on on capital. Okay, and um, and so I finally say, okay, I'm gonna do your conference, but it's it's going to be my presentation. It's not going to be what you want. And they said, fine. So I created the presentation called Romancing Alpha Forsaking Beta. We happen to be recording this right. the day after Valentine's right. Day. And all of the data points or much of the data points from within your book ended up in my presentation. Really, it's the other way around. Most of the presentation data points came from you, or, or certainly at least the start. And, and some of my favorite um, numbers that, that I brought into the presentation, I just have to share two of these because they're insane. In 2008, the hedge fund industry lost more money than all the profits it had generated during the prior decade, possibly more than it had generated ever. Right. How on earth is that possibly it's true? It's amazing, isn't it? It's I think that's just amazing. And for his, for an industry that used to call itself the absolute return industry, I mean, AR Magazine mm -hmm. is called that because of the industry it covers. But hedge funds, of course, over time moved the goalposts or the consultants moved the because it, it was an absolute return. For because sure. Because obviously they lost a huge amount in 2008. And then it was relative return. But right. then their relative returns have also been pretty bad. So now it's an uncorrelated returns that you're looking for. And they are uncorrelated because they're pretty bad and they're worse than most other things you can invest in. So they just got too big. I mean, the industry showed that at a trillion dollars, there's enough opportunities to generate attractive returns. And you go above a trillion dollars, there aren't. And it's a form of sort of cognitive dissonance by investors that they don't recognize this, driven in part by the consultants and the accounting treatment that we discussed a little earlier. I found that the errata of the pension funds are different than the errata of the, meaning the, the misunderstanding and, and misallocation of the high net worth individual. There is a lot of bragging rights, even to say on the links, my hedge fund money, this guy is killing me. He used to be so hot. You know, he's crushing me this year. I don't know what I'm going to do with this guy. That is a form of, of social signaling and bragging, and I didn't realize that until fairly recently. I think that's true. But, you know, the high net worth investors are generally smart people because you have to be smart to be to get rich. And not always. Not, the, not always. You can be lucky, right? <laughs> right? But they're not the biggest hedge fund investors today. No, they're not. And you know what? When you hear this term sophisticated institutional investor, right. I'm telling you, Public pension plans are some of the least sophisticated people I've ever met. I have to share a quick war story, and I, I may have shared this previously. After the presentation, you and I each gave a presentation at the Kennedy School, right. which was filled with um, representatives of various endowments and state pension funds. Apparently, someone went back to their state pension fund, a trustee, and said, hey, you know, this guy Ritholtz told an interesting story. You might want to have him come speak to the uh, advisory board. So I get an invitation, and I, 
you know, again, nonprofit. I'm happy to do it for free. And I won't identify them, but I'm sitting, I get arrive early and I'm sitting in the back of the room and I'm listening to one hedge fund consultant after another do their presentation. And, and my carefully crafted bullet points, throw them out the window. And I, I immediately figured out these guys are never going to do business with me until there's a wholesale slaughter and replacement of every person in that room. Right. They're doomed. They're just going to cost the taxpayer billions of dollars down, down the road. So I basically said, I prepared a nice, tidy presentation, but you don't want to hear it. I'm going to tell you something else. And I proceeded to destroy all the nonsense that I had heard in the previous Good hour. Good for you. And Good. said- said, I don't understand why you would believe, and I use this, that's where that metaphor comes. When when your, uh, when your scouts come out and tell you this guy is the greatest pitcher ever, this is the greatest batter we've ever seen, and year after year they're sending you one bum after another and all these guys wash out of the league, why do you keep listening to them? All I heard was, here's why we did so terribly last year, but at least you're, you know, you're, you're paying a lot for it, and here's why we're going to do better next year. It's, it's, Come for the underperformance, stay for the high fees. And I don't mean to imply that there aren't hedge funds that do really, really well. It's that these guys have no ability to find them, to manage them, and to know how to say, okay, it's time to move on. Well, that's absolutely right. And there's an interesting thing about how you should use hedge funds because hedge fund returns on average are poor. So generally, if you're investing in an asset class, you want diversification, right? That's the uh -huh. only free lunch. But that's assuming that the asset class has an average return that you want. Now, because with hedge funds, you don't want the average return, diversification is going to make it more likely that you get the average. The only way to be a hedge fund investor and be successful is to be good at picking funds. Right. And, and just who, like, is, who and is good at picking certainly funds? certainly less than half the people, right? I mean, just I'm going like, to say less than 90% of the people. I would say it's a very small percentage. Maybe you know. There's a quote I've been trying to chase down. And the earliest mention I found of it, I want to say in the FT, and I don't remember if it was the late 90s or early 2000s, and the quote goes something like, uh, a hedge fund is a wealth transference vehicle masquerading as an asset class. Yeah, well, I mean, that sounds like something Buffett would say or Charlie Munger. Right. right? It, but I, I've never been able to track it the down to them. The original attribution. The first one, I, I want to say it was early 2000s or late 90s, and I know, I'm sorry, it was The Economist, not the FT. Right. But I've never been able to find the original quote for that. I, I mean, you got to love that bet that Buffett had with uh, Protégé, right? Oh, genius. I mean, not even close. Right. And they went through the financial crisis with that bet, right? He was in, this bet was done before 2008. So you had the whole collapse in stocks as well as part of that. Vanguard has this wonderful chart showing the effect of a 2% mutual fund versus a 10 basis point hedge fund and how that compounds over time. And it was it was insane, the right, gap was huge. Right, huge. So they redid it at one and a half percent and then they redid it at 1%. So it's 10 basis points versus one. And it's still enormous. How on earth can you capture, how can you make up for the loss of 2% upfront and then 20% of the net gains? Another data point from you that's astonishing says that, all right, total hedge fund profits, 1998 to 2010, were $450 billion, $449 billion. $70 billion of that went to investors. 
379 billion were fees paid to hedge funds. That's 16% to the investors and 84% to the fund managers. Yeah, and I mean, it's all based on public data. I mean, anybody can figure this out. You just take the assets under management for the industry, assume two and 20, the returns are public. And so Are the that returns alone, public? I thought a lot of the returns industry were- Industry returns. Oh, okay. So, you, so for, those, for, that, for those data, and it was done very, very conservatively because- we assumed, for example, that all hedge funds were charging incentive fee uh, mm-hmm. uh, incentive fees, and then they all stopped after the financial crisis when some still were. So we didn't adjust for survivor bias, which right. would have made the numbers all worse. There's uh, something like twenty percent a year wink out of existence and a new batch yeah. come in, and so because of the high water mark. And we didn't make any adjustments for that. So the so numbers. So it's worse than that. It's worse. It's definitely worse than that. And and anybody recommending hedge funds should have to justify why with those numbers, it's a good place to put your money. So here's my pushback, and let me anticipate the angry emails. And we mentioned this earlier, there are a handful of managers who are spectacular, whether it's Jim Simons or D.E. Shaw or David Tepper, or I could give you a list, and what makes that list of Cliff Asness is another one, and Ray Dalio. What makes the list so special isn't that, hey, these 50 guys are, spe- and it's almost all guys, are spectacular managers representing the hedge funds. They're the outliers. It's the other 95%. Yeah, and you who- know, Barry, the people who are happiest with their hedge fund investments recognize that a diversified portfolio of 30, 40 hedge funds is never going to be good. The people that are happiest have a couple hedge funds. They have a couple. Maybe they've got Ray Dalio or David Tepper. And they're not relying on hedge funds to solve their underfunded pension problem, right? They're relying on hedge funds to add a little bit of something extra to the portfolio. And those are the intelligent people. And that's not the institutional approach to hedge fund investing, but that's how the people who actually are successful at picking hedge funds do it. I have to uh, another war story. So we review a lot of 401ks in the office for people. And I'm, I'm reviewing <laughs> I'm reviewing the 401k. I won't even mention the field the person's in. And I can't figure out, wait, uh, first of all, the 401k is immense for a firm with a handful of people. Like, how do you have so much money in this? Long story short, when the firm was forming and they formed their um, firm, form, formed their 401k, the founders of the firm were working with, I think it was D.E. Shaw, I'm not 100% positive, which is a fund that has done fabulously mm-hmm. well. I left out Howard Marks. This is another guy. Right. Spectacular sure. returns. Yeah. D.E. Shore, spectacular returns. And apparently when you're when it's just a partnership, you can have hedge funds in a 401k up to a certain point. And then once you have a whole bunch of other employees, it it becomes complicated okay. and hard to do. So the founding partner's original investment in D.E. Shaw the returns are mind-boggling. Right, it's bet. like 24% a year yep. for yep. 20 years. It, and they didn't touch it. They left it alone. It grows tax-free. Home run. Brilliant. But, but if you're not in the, that sort of situation, I think that situation is is the lottery ticket that tempts everybody it's else. It's true. 
Because there's always winners. Just like in a casino, there's always people that are winning, right? It's mm -hmm. very hard to That's fall. why That's the it. bells and lights yeah, flash. Yeah, they make a lot of noise when the food machines pay out, right? So, yeah, there's always going to be hedge funds that are successful. But there's not enough that are reliably successful to justify having 30 or 40 of them. These guys have been successful for decades. Right. They're, they're how many hedge funds? You know, again, it's that top 50, top 100. And then, of course, when they're successful, they don't need your money anymore, right? Because they've well, made so much in fees, they start to close and, you know, just manage their own money. My favorite story is Jim Simons of Renaissance Technology. The Medallion Fund is their biggest, right. best 40% a year for 30 years. Stop and think about how insane yeah, that is. And we know we know that's true because I think it was eight or 10 or 12 years in, they said to their outside investors, hey, thanks a lot. Here's your capital back. We unfortunately can't use it anymore. And that fund, that medallion fund is only Simon's and his employees. I know, else I know, there. yeah. So he's great and he's made an, a huge fortune. And you can't invest in it. I mean, it's, it's mind-blowing. It, it, that's the only word for it. There's just nothing else. Yeah. There are funds that have been up 100% for a year or, or triple digits, but that's a one-off. Yeah, it's some it's crazy situation. It's extraordinary. Um, but investors overestimate their ability to access funds that, like that, mm -hmm. right? And, and when they are good, then they make so much money they don't need yours. So you were allocating billions of dollars to this asset class for a long time. Right. Did any of them, you know, uh, ha light up and have the bells and whistles go off? Did any of them really hit the cover of the ball, or or what was what was the well in the nineties? Yeah, in the nineties, yeah, we we had some some great funds that were doing things that were very obscure at the time. Uh -huh. And then when I got into the seeding business, hedge fund seeding was all about making money from the business of hedge funds. So in two thousand, so in other words, you're part of the. You're not an LP. You're a we're GP. A GP. We you're were, part of the general part. We had not an the economic limited. interest in the GP because we, we we felt at that time that institutions were going to start looking for hedge funds, and that uh -huh. was a lot of money. And the business of hedge funds was going to be so much better than being a client of hedge funds. And so that was how we invested. Say that again. The business of hedge funds, being being a partner with hedge funds, was better than being an investor. In Absolutely. Hedge. So, so what's a better. typical structure? You want 20% of the GP? Back in those days, we would put in $25 million in uh -huh. exchange for 25% of the economics of, of the fund. So in so, other words, you were a 25% owner of the, the of GP, the, yes. XYZ Capital Inc. Yep. And then they would go out and using, hey, JP Morgan is yeah, our- Because the and first raise dollar you raise is hard, right? right? And so we'd be the first investor in. And so we wanted hedge funds, obviously, that could make money, but that could grow as well. Mm -hmm. And in that strategy, we made so much more of our return from the economics of the business. You know, the hedge fund returns themselves were kind of mediocre, but they were good enough to raise assets. Right. And it was sharing in the fees that drove our returns for Not our the performance. Clients. The performance was just it was was okay. It wasn't great, mm -hmm. but the fees really boosted our results up better than they would have been otherwise. That that's similar to you, you're selling the picks and and shovels to the gold miners. Exactly, a you're not out looking for gold yourself. Absolutely, that was that. that was that's right. absolutely fascinating. There, there's some other questions I did not get to. I I don't want to keep. By the way, I have many friends who run hedge funds. I am a fan of some of the biggest and best hedge funds in the country, people always write me and say, why do you spend so much time busting on hedge funds? I don't mean to. I mean to bust on people who 
make big promises and fail to deliver and charge a big fee for failing. I mean, you know what, Barry? I don't really blame the hedge fund managers. I blame the investors and the consultants because all a hedge fund manager is doing is saying, I think I've got the best hedge fund. Mm -hmm. And any business owner is entitled to say that. Hedge fund managers don't walk around saying everybody should have a big hedge fund portfolio. Right. They say, look, I don't know about the industry. I just think I want a great hedge fund. So and why do they totally- retain 30 times the earnings that a corporate executive retained? For themselves, meaning. Why? That's why? The, because that's the, the investors will pay the fees. The it's the greatest the structure in the world if you're it on sure the right is. side of it. But hedge fund managers- We're are, in the wrong business. Yes, yes. Yeah, I don't run a hedge fund. Obviously, you can't write the hedge fund mirage and run a hedge fund. That right. wouldn't look too cool. I, I want I want to- I've actually- joked about this privately but I'll I'll out myself. I want to form a hedge fund called Bad Idea Capital. And the disclosure documents, every paragraph is not like a, a warning, not like the usual boilerplate risk. This is a horrible idea, right? <laughs> On the fees. This hedge fund is designed to transfer as much wealth as possible from you the ignorant investor to me the savvy manager. Like I want the private placement memorandum and, and to be what? hilarious. But legally enforced, and nobody will read it anyway. That that's that's what's <laughs> right, so, so funny. That's the thing. I think bad idea capital should be a warning, but it. I don't know if it would be. Yeah, it, yeah. it's it's an amazing uh, concept. Somebody would do it. So here's uh, before we leave hedge funds, um, and again, I don't like bad hedge funds. I love. Great hedge yeah, fund managers. I have, I, believe it or not, I, I still have all my hedge fund industry friends and more because of the book. I had a lot of people say to me, Simon, you're right, there's a lot of mediocrity in the business. Not my fund, of course, but there's a lot of mediocrity. Lake will be gone, absolutely. Yeah. Everybody and, else. And so uh, the hedge fund industry is is populated by a lot of smart people. And people said, yeah, you know what, you make some good points in the book and, and so on. And so I, uh, yeah. Michael Mobison calls that the paradox of skill. That there are so many smart, hardworking, well incentivized, really savvy people looking to invest there uh, and looking to run a fund, that the opportunities for alpha are essentially competed away. Very and hard. so, Very hard, yeah. so, so you end up. It's not that these are dumb guys by any stretch of imagination. These are you don't want to be competing with with these guys. They're that good. Oh, there's absolutely. just so many of some them. Some of the smartest people in finance run hedge funds because mm-hmm. that's where the money is. That's, that's absolutely right. That uh, it's amazing. So here's a quote from from I think this is Wall Street potholes, but I have to ask: If you want to defraud people, a slightly mysterious trading strategy with an apparent strong history of performance in an LP structure, generally outside the regulatory framework is one of the best ways to do it. Now, what you, that describes is either a run-of-the-mill hedge fund or Bernie Madoff. Yeah, and it's an amazing thing. And I think that's from the hedge fund, I was that quote. But, you know, there's a book called The Hedge Fund Fraud Casebook. Really? So just think about this back from it. There's enough material to fill a book on frauds of hedge funds. Now, the hedge fund industry is very largely run by honest people. Mm-hmm. However... If you want to defraud people, you're not going to start a mutual fund because right. it's impossible to defraud people with a mutual fund. You're, so I would say he- it's impossible, but it's hard. It's really hard, right? So if you want to defraud people, a hedge fund's the place to do it. So unfortunately, the hedge fund industry attracts people who want to do that. So it's mm-hmm. not that it's got a lot of crooks. It's just it attracts the crooks. 
Well, you know what Willie Sutton said, right? Go where the money is, right? right. Why do you ride bank? What rob banks? Well, that's yeah, where all the money. Is. That's right. Doesn't make sense to rob gas stations. Of there's course, no, of there's course. no money there. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's an issue. I have an, I'm going to I'm going to challenge you on something that that you said before, and I want to repeat it precisely. The fault lies squarely with the many sophisticated investors who have applied a far less critical analysis and cynicism to their allocation decisions. So you're you're blaming to some degree, you're blaming the investors. Shouldn't all of the various regulators and shouldn't the entire industry be a little better at self-policing? Aren't we burden shifting here a little bit? I mean, it's no, it's definitely the investors and the consultants that help them. And I mean, it's as simple as any investor should force themselves to ask the question, how big should the hedge fund industry be and how big's too big? Mm-hmm. And if they don't ask that question, that very sort of fundamental question, they're just not working hard enough. They're just so not- in other words, it's your money. You're putting at risk. You better know what the heck you're doing with it. Right. How could you not ask that question? Say, OK, is $3 trillion the right size for the hedge fund industry? And it's fair enough for investors to say, I've analyzed it, and I think they can manage up to $5 trillion, and here's why. Has they, anyone really said that? No, they don't even ask the question. <laughs> they don't even ask the question. So and your, the your number is a trillion is about Well, the, because the, that's what the evidence is, right? At a trillion dollars and lower, the, the returns were good. Now, was it the size of assets, or was it the number of funds? Because it would well, I were, think it's both. There certainly the weren't 11,000 funds. It's back. the size of assets, mm-hmm. most clearly because there's a finite pool of inefficiencies to exploit. But I'm sure the number of funds is a factor as well. But the size of the industry is a bigger problem. The size of the industry. Yeah. Um, I'm going through, uh, oh, we were talking about the wealth transfer earlier. Let's put some flesh on those bones. So the baby boomer generation, which are people just a little older than me, Mm -hmm. I I just kind of, I'm in between generations. they're sitting on a, a pile of about 30-something trillion dollars, and they're retiring at some ungodly number, 65000 a day, a week, okay. so, some crazy number. Right. The millennial generation, the 20-something generation, uh, everybody who was born, I don't, I don't know what that number is, after 1990, I think. Okay. Um, they're now a bigger demographic group than the boomers. It's the first time a really? we had Gen X, know. we had Gen Y. This is the first time a defined group are bigger than. Remember, uh, not a whole lot of babies during the war, and then when all the GIs, forty million GIs, come home in 1945, 46, suddenly uh, everybody moves to the suburbs. We develop the automobile culture, the rise of interstate highways, and and the rise of suburbia, and boom, a ton of kids. That was a giant demographic. Sure, right. And now, the here it is, 50 years later, now the millennial generation is bigger than that. So this 30 plus $31 trillion wealth transfer that's going to take place, first to the surviving spouses, typically the wives, who tend to outlive the husbands, then to the children and the next generation, what should this coming generation be doing, thinking about preparing themselves for when this wealth transfer takes place? How should they be educating themselves to become stewards of capital? Well, they should clearly be taking a much longer-term focus on investing than Mm -hmm. is prevalent today. I mean, it it just seems that people are more short-term in focus 
every year than the year before. So that would be the first thing. Average um, holding period is some days or something. Yeah, like it's, that, it's right? even if you back at HFT, it's still it's getting it's, shorter and shorter. It's and shorter. ludicrous. And and when you think about it, the whole point of investing is to give yourself the ability to consume more in the future. You need to stay ahead of inflation after taxes. And yet so much of all the media is focused on short-term outperformance, where's the market going tomorrow? And the media presents that because the people, because the viewers want that. Mm -hmm. that's, just the, that's just supply and demand working. But at the same time, it's clearly not the right way to save for the long run. I mean, transaction costs and taxes and churning are all going to destroy wealth over time. So I think the first advice I give people is, is have a long-term investment plan that doesn't rely on having to figure out where the market's going tomorrow or even next month and stick with that long-term plan. So we talked earlier about the fiduciary rule. Uh, my question for you is, is, isn't the genie really out of the bottle? If we look at how fast a firm like Vanguard has grown, they were barely a trillion dollars before the financial crisis. They're now $4 trillion. We look at BlackRock, which is also another giant indexer, $5 trillion. Haven't much of the investing public figured out, I'm done with market timing, I'm done with wacky, non-traded REITs, I'm not picking stocks, I'm just going to buy a portfolio of indexes and put it away for a few decades. It, it, has that taken root enough that the fiduciary rule is here no matter what the DOL does? I mean, I don't know. that Clearly, uh, Vanguard's growth has been a good thing in terms of people investing for the long run, but that mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean just because the index funds are big doesn't mean people are not going in and out of them and market timing as well. Well, when we look at firms like Dimensional Funds or Vanguard, their clients tend to be pretty stable. And, right. And they're not, I would think so. They, it's they, a good thing. That's absolutely a good thing in terms of wealth creation for their customers. Mm -hmm. Definitely. That's, that's good. So more of that would be better. And the thing is, in investing... It's very hard for people to accept that I just want to get the average return because average seems like, oh, you know, who wants to be average? That's right? an ad that we see on TV yeah. all the time. And, and yet average in investing is, is, is better than – if you just get the index return, obviously you're doing better than the average because the average includes people who are always trading and, and right. spending money on Most people don't – you know, most people fail to keep up fail with Fail to average. get with the indices. Right? Howard Marks tells a wonderful story about the early part of his career where he's talking to a – um, I want to say a client or a pension fund, and uh, the person basically gives him this fascinating insight. Don't be in the top 10%, because the only people who are in the top 10% in any given year, in order to achieve that, right. you're going to end up in the bottom 10% in other years. Risk, right. Where you want to be is the second quartile. If you're 25 to 50%, That's and you do that consistently over time, your gross returns over that over 20 years will put you in, I want to say, top 5%. That's interesting. So he's saying to be in the top decile over the long run. But top, not, to not be, right. To be if you want to find your yes. way in the top yes. decile, don't have any blow-ups. Right. So don't be bottom 10% ever. Right. And target the second quartile because you compound that over 20 years and the up 10, if you're top 5% one year and bottom 20%, the next year, that does much worse. Yeah, than, that's good advice. Yeah, it, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, I can see that. So so when we look at Vanguard, by the way, they're about a third active, two-thirds passive, but their big focus is not so much 
passive as low cost. If you keep your costs under control, that you eliminate that drag. Forget two and twenty. And you know it's a fascinating company because I, I they asked me to go and give a presentation on the hedge fund mirage a few mm-hmm. years ago, and I drove out there to Valley Forge, and they totally. It's a campus. It's, it's like a, a campus, giant right? But you, if you, you might have been there too. I interviewed Jack Bogle there. Amazing okay. place. So yeah, so you go in, and I joke with them, and I said, you know, I'm glad to see that the only German car in the parking lot was mine. Right? <laughs> Everybody's got a domestic car. <laughs> they are known for really. Watching their first of all, the reason they're in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, they're not even forget New York, they won't even be in Philly. Philly right, is expensive, right? Right. So they, you know, before they were there, this was just this wasn't even suburbs; it was exurbs. It's a great it was farms service and to rolling the, hills. to the investing public. Totally. I mean, I have money with Vanguard. Mm-hmm. My kids are invested with Vanguard, so I think it's full disclosure. Terrific. My wife's four hundred three B is all Vanguard, and my portfolio is a mix of. Vanguard, DFA, and a handful of other BlackRock, yeah. Wisdom Tree, yeah. but it's mostly Vanguard yeah, and DFA. Yeah, no, they're good. They're good. Yeah, they, they, they have Jack Bogle. Um, so I've worked my way through Vanguard. Uh, Jack Brennan, the previous CEO, mm-hmm. was a guest. Bill McNabb was a guest twice. Okay. And Jack Bogle, let me tell you, that was a thrill. First of all, the you've seen the campuses. Yes, it's a campus. Yes, it's yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You're like, I can't believe this is a financial services firm. Yeah. I thought I was walking through, you know, a, 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 like a Vermont liberal arts Very college. tight security, though. Yeah. To get in and out of those buildings. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's true. And then Bogle, I think he's 86. He, We should all be as sharp as he is. Yes. At eight, sharp as a tack and just, uh, you can hear his voice. He's, he's passionate. He's incredibly knowledgeable. He built a $4 trillion Yeah, firm. he's a force for good, definitely. Yeah, it, I it, think it, what he's done is good. It's it's really quite fascinating. Right. I don't even know I don't even know where else to, yeah, to go. Yeah, I that. own Vanguard. Most of my money's in energy infrastructure, but I do So let's to- talk about that. So cuz that's really fascinating. Uh, we we have a new president. Right. And both candidates during the campaign talked about building infrastructure. My definition of infrastructure and other people's definition um, are very, very different. Tell me what your definition of of energy infrastructure is. Well, energy infrastructure is pipelines, it's storage assets, it's compressor stations, it's all of the hardware that moves hydrocarbons Mm -hmm. from under the ground to the consumer who ultimately needs them. Right. And it's just a really, really cool place to be invested because America is heading towards energy independence. I I think we're just about there. We export... uh, On natural gas, we were net exporters in November. Right. Basically, OPEC took on the American private sector and lost. That's that's the headline. Say that again. I love Uh, that. OPEC took on the American energy sector and they lost. Two years ago, OPEC said, okay, we're going to let the price of oil collapse. We're going to keep pumping and we're going to crush those shale producers in America, those high-cost producers. And that industry did what the American private sector does so fantastically well. They innovated. They found new technologies, productivity enhancements. They found all kinds of ways to bring down their break-even. And OPEC basically conceded defeat in November, said, we can't do it. We just can't afford to keep the price this low. And so America today is the swing producer. Which is amazing. Oil. It is absolutely amazing. So what did from from the oil embargo in 1973 to 40 years later, 
It took four decades for this country to basically say, we are not going to be dependent on anybody else for energy. I mean, two years ago, we weren't even thinking about energy independence. And now there's a very real pathway to energy independence over the next five to 10 years, where we'll be net natural gas exporters, still importing some crude oil, but less than we used to. And in a much, much more, I mean, we've fought wars in the Middle East in part because of, because of oil. oil. We spent $5 trillion or maybe more between Afghanistan and Iraq. It's a fantastic story for America. And it's just, you know, America has the labor force in the energy sector, the access to capital, the technology, technology, also the fact that mineral rights belong to the landowner in America, mm-hmm. which is very, very unusual. As opposed probably. to the sovereign entity? As opposed to the government, right? So that facilitates exploration production. And it's There's just a financial a, incentive to get it out of the yeah, ground. Yeah, because it's, it's easy to, you know, you just have the, the EMP company, the drilling company, and the landowner. I mean, I was in Pennsylvania last year giving a presentation, and I met somebody who's, who's got, you know, 1% of their property has some drilling equipment. They're getting a $6,000 monthly check. They're growing corn on the rest of the land. They're happy, right? So let me push back on this, because I want to talk more about LNG and, and nat gas and, in, and the industrial production of, of uh, energy. Um, so it's great they're getting $6,000 a month. What about when they turn on the tap water and flaming water comes out? Yeah, so when you, when you frack, when you drill down and you frack for, for natural gas and crude oil, you're going much farther down than the, than the water table. Typically, aquifers are a few hundred feet down, right? and drilling goes down Thousands. three or 5,000 right. feet. And so accidents can happen, mm-hmm. but there isn't anything about the overall technology of fracking that is bad for drinking water. And yes, of course, there was that Gasland movie. Right. But I think generally, you know, we drill thousands of wells a year in America. It's another very, very highly regulated industry. And and I think that that's the exception. What about all the earthquakes in Oklahoma? They I used to get that, three or four a year. Now they're getting thousands. I think that's an example of where there's certain geologies that you learn maybe we shouldn't be fracking there. right? <laughs> and so we learn, right? But America has been fracking for decades right. and drilling wells, thousands and thousands of wells. And so there's always this feedback loop and, and, and you're learning. And that's the learning process that's going on there. Mm-hmm. What about the pushback that now I just converted my house to natural gas mm-hmm. from oil? Right. It's cheaper. Yep. It's it's supposed to be much cleaner. It's much cleaner, yeah. But the pushback that I've gotten from some of my environmental buddies is hey, when you use natural gas to get that out, a lot of methane and other very bad chemicals get released into the atmosphere, and it's effectively the same as coal or oil. I, I think that overstates it, but you do release methane when well, you're Well, methane doing- is what you're burning, right? So right. methane is what goes into the natural gas mm-hmm. supply. So there can be leaks and so on, but, sure. but there's a lot of regulations around capturing that. And clearly, there's an economic incentive for the companies to capture that. So, Well, not, not if the cost of capturing it is more than the value of the gas. But then thinking. they wouldn't drill, because methane's the basic commodity right. that you're getting out of the ground. And so mm-hmm. methane captures improved and leaks have gone down dramatically as a percentage of natural gas extracted over the years. So there's lots of data to show that we're getting more efficient at that and better at it over time. I can tell you this is our first winter, and it's been a with natural gas. And... It's been not as cheap as I expected, but so much cheaper than oil. We we have a, we used to have a thousand gallon tank, and I right. would get these deliveries. I'll get a bill for eighteen hundred dollars, yeah, and then yeah. next month 
there'd be another door. Wait, how did I go through a thousand? My house isn't that big. Yeah. And it it's was. A, it should be a lot cheaper. Um, so you get bills in the winter. It's three and four hundred dollars yeah, a month. It's a lot more reasonable. And that's running everything in the house on right. it, including the fireplace. Which used to be a pain in the neck to clean up. I love right. lighting the fire, Light, yes, cleaning up fire, after yeah. it. And now I grab the remote and I go, all right, fire. So and here's a cool thing, right? We've exported natural gas from Pennsylvania mm -hmm. through pipeline down to Louisiana to the Sabine Pass where it's liquefied and put on one of those big tankers and right. shipped out to the United Arab Emirates in the Middle East where they are awash in natural gas. And Why are they buying our gas? Because it's cheap. Because we're really good at producing cheaper it, than they are producing cheap it enough there. to cover the transportation costs. That's amazing because when you amazing. look at the cost, so it's a big difference between oil and gas. I think a lot of people don't realize not every barrel of oil costs the same. Oh, uh, it's huge. There's, you there's go to Saudi Arabia, many, many hundreds of grades of right. Crude oil. Saudi Arabia, the oil is as cheap and can, as can be defined. It's easily accessible. It's not yep. too hard to find. It's not too deep, and it's right. fairly, um, it's fairly clean. It's not Light. heavy, it's easy right? To process, right? It, it's all fun. good. On the other hand, you're going eight thousand feet below the ocean. That's expensive. Oil to find. Well, and here's the and thing. extract. You've had a trillion dollars of cutbacks in exploration budgets for crude oil because of the price collapse a year ago. Over what time period? Between now and 2020. A so trillion four, dollars. So three or four years of, of exploration. Yes, basically, that's wow. right. A huge drop. And so it takes a while to bring new crude, crude oil supply on, right? In America, shale production happens very quickly. And when the price goes down, they still stop drilling. They have these drilled uncompleted wells. The price right. goes up, they start drilling again. 90 days is the is the payback time typically from when you first start the really? well to when you get enough cash back to pay for the cost that you've incurred. Uh -huh. And so that's put America in a fantastically strong position in terms of providing more and more of our own energy. And as you said, being a- For a gas or for oil? For both. Mm -hmm. For both. I mean, Let, let's talk about gas for a minute. It's been said that the United States is the Saudi Arabia of coal, the Saudi Arabia of gas, but not the Saudi Arabia of oil. Why is that? Well, North America. A lot of that depends on the price, mm -hmm. and so North America, which obviously including Alberta and British Columbia with all the tar sands, uh -huh. at a high enough price. There are Saudi-type reserves of crude oil there, but right. it's very expensive to extract. So typically, those estimates of what's available, you know, ultimate recovery, depends on the price and the technology. And so they, so they can change. I would say that recoverable oil in the United States, estimates for that keep going up every year because of new technologies. I mean, look at the Permian Basin in West Texas. Right. We've been drilling there for almost 100 years. Right. And, it's, and, and yet it seems it's one of the fastest growing places. Right. Like there's a land rush going right. on there to get in because the new technology is making it possible to extract crude oil from areas that were thought to be basically non-economic anymore. Describe the new technology because I find some of this stuff fascinating. And full disclosure, my now-retired brother-in-law for many years was – uh, a senior attorney in the legal department of Amico, that little BP Amico thing he was right, in, right. he was involved in, and he has been telling me for a long, long time the way technology is changing is going to change as much as the alternatives have their own attractiveness. What's going on in carbon-based stuff I've been hearing for a long time is just mind-boggling, 
including the ability to drill sideways. Yeah, I mean, imagine who would think you could do that? So yeah, drilling uh, sideways longer laterals. They'll have spider formations now where you drill down a well and then go laterally in multiple directions mm -hmm. so you can be more efficient. They they use the drills for less time, so they finish a well more quickly. So obviously that costs less the money. The drill goes in, they get out, they and get now out they're producing. They'll, they'll use actually more sand. So sand is one of the things they pump down into the ground when they do the fracking. Uh -huh. And the grains of I sand. I thought it was water and other chemicals. It's mostly water. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's 95% water by volume. There's some other chemicals. But the sand is critical because when they push the water down, it fractures the rock. Right. And the grains of sand prop open all of these tiny little cracks oh, in the rock. Okay. So now one of the innovations has been that more sand with finer grains really? keeps even smaller cracks open and allows better production from wells. So there's, That's amazing. there's lots of innovation and, and, and technological improvements that are happening all of the time. And it's less than $5 million to drill a well, which sounds like a five lot. $5 million. Less than $5 million. And sounds what does like that produce in terms of income? I mean, it depends on the play, but you could easily have wells that'll pay you back in 30 days if it's a very high-producing well. So uh, I, I, I'm trying to be respectful of whatever compliance rules you have, so I don't want to go any place where you can't go, but you run an MLP, right? Yeah, we run an MLP mutual fund. The name of it is? It's the Catalyst MLP and Infrastructure Fund. And so what do you buy? You're obviously really knowledgeable about well, energy. Well, you know what's really cool about that strategy is we found an analogy with hedge funds, believe it or not. Oh, so, really? So MLPs, Master Limited Partnerships, are partnerships that own pipelines. Uh-huh. And they're organized like hedge funds legally. Now, Meaning not, that you're the general partner and everybody else is a limited partners, partner. Right? Now, so turns, the investors have no liability and you have all right. whatever liability there That's is. That's right. Now, it turns out that an MLP general partner runs an MLP the same way that a hedge fund manager or a hedge fund GP runs the hedge fund. And you can buy MLP general partners and they have the same type of preferential economics that hedge fund managers have. So it's sort of like if you could buy hedge fund managers or hedge funds, what would you buy? Well, you'd buy the hedge fund managers. Right. You just can't because they're private. In the MLP business, you can actually buy the MLP general partners. And that's what we do. And the beauty of that is that MLPs are growing. MLPs are growing their assets because we need more infrastructure because the oil and gas is in places it wasn't always. North Dakota was not a big place for crude oil. Pennsylvania was not a big place for natural gas. So MLPs are growing their assets. And you know if you invest in hedge fund managers when hedge fund assets are growing, you know that's going to be good because more assets sure. means more fees. And it's the same thing with MLP general partners. So our mutual fund, which was last year's best performing mutual fund, is up 65%. Are you allowed to say that? I can say that's public information. So I had a conversation with someone who runs an ETF shop who said he couldn't say that because there are certain hoops he has to jump through, even though one of their funds was had generated the highest return in the calendar year. What do you need to be able to do in order to say our MLP was the best performing energy MLP last year. I mean, I think if I'm just stating public information, I feel pretty comfortable with that. Um, okay, the ETF folks who I think are governed by FINRA told me they can't just say, here's the math. Somebody else has to say it, and then they could quote them. Okay. I don't know. I don't know We're who, SEC regulated. Oh, so you business. don't deal with the FINRA nonsense, right, which right. is uh, um, good for yeah, you. Yeah, maybe so, that's the difference, because I'm SEC registered. And they're, just, yeah. and they're uh, but FINRA. It's, but it's the Catalyst MLP and Infrastructure Fund. Investors can look it up. So the holdings are other... MLPs. They're MLPs and the general partners 
who uh-huh. run MLPs. The MLP general partner looks like a hedge fund manager. Got it. And so that's what we so do. So it's not a fund of funds. It's a fund that holds other MLPs. Absolutely. So I know the REIT structure is really tax advantage advantageous tax-wise because so long as 90% of the net gains pass through, there's no tax at that level. Am I stating that correctly? Yes, yes. How is uh, how are MLPs structured relative to, to taxes? I mean, they're similar. MLPs don't pay tax. And that's, so, that's why I asked the so, question. But they do issue a K-1, and lots of investors like Loathe. the fact. They hate K-1s. They right. like the fact that MLPs don't pay tax, but they hate the K-1s. Right, and so their accountants have taught them to hate the K ones. Yeah, and I think that the problem with K ones are overstated, but the world is. You're what right. It is. I think you're right. Um, so our so fund, the K one pass through shows up. It's almost like getting a 1099. Well, our fund gives a 1099. So we oh, basically you do? Okay. we take the K one out of it for the client. Uh-huh. The client gets a 1099, but they get exposure to MLPs, but they don't have to deal with the K ones. That happens at the fund level. Oh, really? Yeah. I had no idea about yeah. that. That's interesting. So that's, I that's don't have an issue with K-1s because I get one and I have to yeah, deal with it. of course. If right. you're dealing with one, all right. One yeah. or 10 doesn't right, matter. Right, exactly. And but a, one or ca- zero is a big difference. And accountants overstate it. I've talked to accountants who complain about it, and I say, why don't you just charge more for that, right? <laughs> How much do you charge to do the K-1? Well, I don't know. I just don't like the work. Well, they charge work. hourly. So it, if it takes longer, they're going to charge yeah. more. So my accountant just charges Everybody spends 100 fine. grand preparing their taxes, right? Isn't that what your accountant charges? In a bad year. I got to talk to my guy. <laughs> That's um hey listen you know everybody has the thing that they're naturally good at and I know if I had to do my taxes myself I would be in tears before I was finished okay. whatever they charge me and it ain't anywhere near that sort of money I'm happy to pay it cuz I don't the the greatest thing about Henry Ford was was the assembly line where each person did what they specialized in right and I'm happy to say please do my taxes oh me here. too me I just too. don't want to have just anything trying to, to do check with that. that it's correct is is complicated. Uh, it, it, you have to. I'm a big picture guy. I'm not a detail guy. Uh, as much as I get into the weeds with number and data, numbers right. and data and stuff, being able to track all that it, it extraordinarily is extraordinarily difficult. Uh, and the people who do it well are worth their weight in gold. It's, and it's, and it, I, it's it's uh, it's appalling that it's so complex. So the original concept of submitting your taxes on a postcard from Steve Forbes, uh, we're never going to see anything like that. It's so hard because with tax reform, the losers know who they are Mm -hmm. and the winners don't, right? And so- The winners don't appreciate- uh, let Let me qualify that. Lots of people who pass through these doors, one of the themes that come up over and over again is, I know how how lucky I have been in my career, life- profession I've heard time and time again from people that this happened and it was serendipitous and it changed my whole life. So I think some of the people who are the tax winners are very much aware of that. Maybe not enough. But my point is in terms of tax reform. Oh, when, okay. When you change the tax code. For sure. There's winners and losers, right? Right. And the problem with the change is that the losers are vocal Oh, and absolutely. the winners may not really know that oh, they're winners. And that's the challenge. I completely misspoke. And I, it's tax reform that's that's needed to simplify it, so at least it might fit on a couple postcards. So you're a little more plugged into what's going on in D.C. than I am. Are we really going to see any form of corporate tax return in our lifetime or personal tax reform or closing of loopholes, or is that just 
uh, election year. Blather. I mean, it looks that way, right? The consensus is that we'll get some simplification, lower corporate tax rates, right. fewer, fewer personal uh, brackets for, for taxes. And so, but so you think that's going to actually happen? I would say it's better than 50%. Okay. But I couldn't say 90% probability, but right. it's pro- you know, the odds seem to favor that. I, since Donald Trump seems to only appreciate tweets, just this morning I exhorted him, can we please stop with the national security nonsense and the immigration junk, and why don't you notch a win and clean up the tax code and, and stop with this, all this other stuff, which I'm waiting for the hate mail to come well, on that Well, wouldn't also. that be great? I mean, Reagan was the last president who really oversaw any sort of big tax reform. Right. And so I think that uh, it's well, well overdue. And what's amazing is Reagan, unlike Trump, had to deal with an opposing party. Uh, not that Trump doesn't have to deal with it, right. but currently the Republicans control I mean, the House, the Senate. Reform, and, yeah. It would be great if we got bipartisan approval of tax reform. That might be naive to assume that we'll get that, but at least right. they get some Democrats on board with I, it. I think that you don't have to do a whole lot to get Democrats on board, especially if you dangle a $2 trillion infrastructure right, plan. Right, Hey, we're going to repatriate $2 There's trillion. There's a grand bargain that could be done there, right? There's, but it's been there for a long time. Right. So Nobody maybe this is the up. time. Maybe this, it'll, this is the time it'll get done. And, and I'm not talking about income distribution. I'm talking about making the tax code simpler, fairer, Absolutely. better, not saying, okay, we're going to take money from billionaires and give it to poor no, people or vice versa. I'm talking about making it a little less complex and a little more The coherent. complexity is mind-boggling. I mean, you're probably like me. That I, I have a tax return that's probably 200 pages. I mean, it's amazing they get any money. It's so complicated. I uh, send them all my money, and they send me back what they think I should get. So it's a one-pager. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they say, here's what yeah. you're going to live on this right. year. That's and I say, thanks. Feels, right? So it's yeah. I work it, and I have I my know. accountant. All my accountant does is double-check their work. And yeah. so far, that seems to be it's uh, a, it's seems to be working out. I know I only have you for a finite amount of time. Let me get to some of my standard questions, my favorite questions I ask all of my guests. Okay. So we know you spent 23 years at J.P. Morgan. What did you do before that? Well, I worked in London for a couple of years. I worked. You're in, originally from the UK. I'm from the UK. I worked in the stock exchange in London. For so a couple you're of years. so so you're from London. Where did the Australian accent come from? I don't know. That's that's hard to tell. I've only spent a week there in my life. Is that true? Yes. Um. So you were in London. Who'd you work for in London? I worked for a company called Dezoot and Bevan, which became part of Barclays. Okay. And then I was a, a money broker for a short period of time, and I transferred with them to New York. Explain to us ugly Americans what a money broker is. Well, a money broker deals with big banks and other institutions, trading currencies or mm-hmm. derivatives or euro-dollar deposits, and that's what I did for a short time. I did that for a few years, and then I moved over to banking and, and joined uh, what became J.P. Morgan in the 80s. So what motivated you to come to the United States? Uh, you know, I was born in Canada, and uh-huh. so I'd spent some time in Canada with my dad. My parents split up when uh, I was young. So and maybe so, it's Canadian accent maybe, that's infiltrating, maybe. not Australian. So I always had this idea that it'd be nice to move back to North America, and New York is obviously a much bigger financial center than Toronto. So I moved to New York, and um, and at the time I thought maybe I'll move up to Toronto at, at some point, but dropped that idea because once I got here, it was just like, how? why would you be anywhere else? That is a question a lot of people wrestle with. 
Um, and the answer is weather. Weather is right. So, yes. so I'm here. I have no interest in going anywhere else. But whenever anyone says, why would you want to leave New York City? It's the weather. Hey, it's Nobody February. Nobody moves here for the climate. Right. That's it's, true. It's, yes, not I, for I walk the dogs early in the morning. This morning it was 22 degrees. It's going to be 45 today. Yeah. Maybe it was, tw- maybe it was 27 today. Uh, uh, yesterday it was 22. I have a, yeah, uh, it's cold. I have an iPad on the wall, and all it does is run the weather app. There are a bunch of other apps right. that I can access there, but when I walk out that door, I'm like, Look at the temperature yeah. outside. And yeah. I, then I have the thermometer outside, and I could check if the iPad it. app is accurate. Yeah. And it it's, is. It's, it's mostly... It's um, let's talk about mentors. Who are the people who influenced the way you think about finance? Yeah, I get... You know, I spent a lot of years in trading, and mm-hmm. there's a fellow called Don Layton, who's now the CEO of Freddie Mac, who ran the trading business oh, really? at J.P. Morgan. Uh-huh. And... Uh, he he was he was just tremendous. He was a great leader. He's a great leader. Um, he's he really exemplified integrity and strategy with detail orientation. There's another fellow who's retired now. Bill Pike used to run government bond trading when I was there. He's about uh, thirteen or fourteen years older than me, and I was in my twenties when I was first working there. And he was running government bond trading, and it was just always fascinating listening to his interpretation of market psychology mm-hmm. and how people were thinking about bonds because that's what I was trading at the time. Right. And so, you know, they're two people that I worked with in those days when I was a lot younger and, and, and I have still have a tremendous respect for both of them. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about investors. What investors have colored the way you look at the world of investing? I mean, obviously, Buffett has a has a That's a default setting. Right. Everybody, everybody cannot not say and we don't invest in necessarily the things that he invests in because he doesn't you know he's but his process is fascinating well just the idea that you want to have a moat and that you want to be holding things that you'd want to own forever Uh and that's a hard thing to do because that's not the time frame that a lot of investors have and we found that two years ago when energy infrastructure was down a lot collapsed yeah and we found just just how high quality our investors really are because they stayed with us. And in many cases, they added money, we picked up new clients, but that's sort of a self-selection that we had clients who understood that we're not gonna get you out of the high, we're gonna be invested for the long run. Mm-hmm. So that that really helped a lot. That That is uh, that is quite fascinating. Let's talk about any other, anybody else besides Buffett? Especially uh, you're, you're in energy. Who, who else besides Buffett catches your attention? Uh, who else in there? That's interesting. Uh, no, he's probably the one. He's okay. probably the one. You I could think. do a lot worse. Yeah, exactly. That's right. That's you, right. You can't get that. You can't yeah. get hurt saying Warren Buffett. How about books? You you mentioned um a couple of books earlier. You mentioned Flash Boys by Michael Lewis. Well, anything by Michael Lewis. I, I, I mean, totally. Can I, I tell you something? I have Blindside, the Blindside, teed up for vacation. It's the only book of his I haven't read. Oh, is that right? I'm looking yeah. forward to that. Yeah. I mean, listen, I read Moneyball. Listen to me, right? Right. Baseball. I Fa- mean, it's fascinating. You've forgotten more than I know about baseball. And okay. I loved Moneyball. It right? was it was fascinating. It was a great book. I just read uh, The Undoing Project. Amazing. Which is all about behavioral finance and- Tversky and Tversky and, and uh, Daniel Kahneman. I love the was... digression in the beginning about the basketball- Yes, uh, yes, yes. That's and it's right. the same thing. It has nothing to do with the sport. 
It's about what assumptions are everybody making that's wrong. Yes. So, Michael Lewis, I, I, I'm reading uh, Finding Pixar today, which is by a former CFO of Pixar. Lawrence Levy. Lawrence Levy. Previous guest and on the show. It's yeah, wonderful. How, it's how far great, into but, it are you? Uh, they've just done the IPO. Oh, okay. So you're you're deep into it. Yeah. And I, it's a fascinating book. Well, you know what caught my attention is Andrew Ross Sorkin commented on it. And he said, like every great Pixar movie, it has a happy ending as well. And I'm looking forward to that. So, so I'm reading that. Here's a guy who worked closely with Steve Jobs. Yes. Nobody really, I never heard of this guy. Did you ever hear of no, him before No, no, I hadn't. And he tells stories about Steve Jobs that are, I learned from the book that Steve Jobs became a billionaire not because of Apple, because of but Pixar. because of Pixar. Yes, yes, he made so much more money out of Pixar than Apple. In the Apple. beginning, anyway. Yeah. Uh, utterly so, fascinating. So that's what I'm reading today. And became the one. biggest shareholder in Disney through the Pixar. Through the itself. acquisition, yes, yeah. absolutely. Crazy. Absolutely, yeah. So that's great. Who else? Who else do you enjoy reading? What other books do you like? Well, you know, I read um, Finance Misbehaving by Richard Thaler last year, which builds on the work by Kahneman and Tversky. Right. right? And so... I, you Another know, I, guest. Uh, I read all the books on the financial crisis. Um, They're still coming out. I mean, I thought Hank Paulson's book was back from the... Hank Paulson's was... Yep. Um, I forget the name of his, but that was terrific. Um, back from the Brink, I think, was his. Mm -hmm. but That's Anke's, on my sh list to read. Bernanke's book was good as well. I it's mean, we were big. so fortunate to have people like Paulson and Bernanke in the positions they were in at that time. Howard Marks said the same thing you did. I really, because imagine that meeting where Paulson gets all the CEOs in a room and says, here's the deal. You're all going to take 10 to $25 billion of capital and you're not leaving until you go. So he's got, you know, Jamie Dimon in there right. and, and, and Lloyd Blankfein and people who are not used to being told that What at to do, all. right. And who else could pull that off? Right. One or two people said, we don't need the money. We don't want to take it. Why do we have to take this? And the answer was, well, you're going to need it. And even if you don't need it, we have to hide who does need it. Exactly. Which no, is it, kind it was, of a fascinating. It was absolutely the right strategy. And so few people could have executed that. The former CEO of Goldman. That's what it took, right? right. He was one of their peers, right? So... Um, so all of the books on the financial crisis I thought were really good. I find, so the there are three books that, that I feel obligated to read, Paulson's, Bernanke's, and Geithner. And right. I, I can't bring myself to read Bernanke or Geithner because they were, kind, they were there beforehand and helped contribute right. to the crisis. Right, right, yes. Paulson, say what you will about Goldman Sachs. You could bash Goldman Sachs all you want, you can't really say they were a major cause of the crisis. No, not at all. Uh, well, they created some synthetic CDOs and they did stuff for they, John they, Paulson. Not everything they did was good, but uh, they didn't cause it. But you can't say these guys were the proximate cause of. No, you can't. Of, of the, there were, I had a uh, I had a list of about twenty five people and Goldman Sachs, people, organizations, institutions. They don't even make the top twenty five. Barney to, Frank is more responsible. Um. I've pushed back against that argument, and it goes something like this. If lending to the poor caused the crisis, then the boom and bust should take place in places where the poor are. The boom and bust wasn't in Harlem. It wasn't in South Philly. It wasn't in the bad parts of Chicago. It was in California, Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. 
It had nothing whatsoever to do with lending to the poor. So well, that's been my counter-argument. Well, it was increasing home ownership to up into the high 60s as a percentage. For sure, but we, you had you had Clinton, you had Bush, you had every Republican and both Democratic. Both parties. Both parties. This is a bipartisan However, plan, definitely. However, look at the Democrats in California and the Republicans on the Federal Reserve. When you had all of these non-bank lenders— not covered by uh, Fannie and Freddie, unable to buy their stuff because it's non-conforming loans, and not covered by the FDIC. You have a whole run of like 400 lend-to-securitize mortgage underwriters located in California. People started to complain about them. William Poole went to Alan Greenspan, then chair of the Mm -hmm. Fed. Greenspan called them innovators, leave them alone. People went to the Democratic-controlled Congress, California Senate and Mm -hmm. Assembly, and same thing. Hey, these are are business owners. These are thriving businesses in California. Leave them alone. So it is fairly bipartisan. It's bipartisan. It was an oversight and a public policy failure that allowed that behavior to take place. And some misincentivized, some misaligned incentives. Without doubt. My favorite was the I'll be gone, you'll be gone bonuses yeah, where you right. take the bonus you leave and if it blows up after you're gone it doesn't yeah, matter it's yeah. someone else there was a uh, lot of blame to go around so so let me keep plowing through any other books you want to bring up before uh so the paulson book is also on my list yes how about nonfiction? do you ever i mean how about fiction do you ever read anything that's not nonfiction? i'm uh, in the same loop as you everything i read is nonfiction. fiction Pill- well pillars of the earth pillars of the earth who pillars wrote that pillars of the earth yeah, you ask me. You know, you can look that up afterwards. What type of book is it's that? It's a novel based in medieval Britain really? about the construction of a cathedral, and um, that is a. Um, and there was, and then there was a sequel. Ken Follett. Ken Ken Follett. He's Follett. Ken Follett. That is sort of an epic story. So the pillars. I don't of the read Earth. a lot of non-fiction. Uh, a lot of fiction. Oh, this thing read. is won all manners of awards. Yeah. Oh, look at this it's, is a whole. It's that's a, a fascinating. It's, a, it's one of those stories that you were sorry when it's finished because mm-hmm. you were so into the characters. It's sort of a multi-generational story, all around the building of this cathedral in medieval Britain, and and it's and it the characters are well developed. But it also tries to give you a flavor of what everyday life was like uh-huh. for people who were not, you know, royalty, but regular people living in 16th century Britain. Enormous and brilliant, a great epic tale crammed with characters unbelievably alive across the gulf of centuries. Yeah. Wow, that's a hell of an it's endorsement. One of my, yeah, so like I said, I don't read a lot of fiction, but that's one of my favorites. I, I need I need one more uh, fiction book to, to bring a vacation. That This one may be it. Um, so... Since you've joined the industry, what do you what do you see as having been the major changes that have had the most impact? Well, it's the speed, isn't it? And and it's and it's a lot less personal. I mean, it used to be when I started in the business, transactions happened face to face in many cases or over the phone with people that you knew. So you had a lot of iterative transactions with familiar right. people. And of course, exchange floors have largely gone. And everything about trading is so impersonal now. Software is eating everything. Software is doing everything. So there's a there's you know the it's a whole global community where you don't know the people that you're trading with, and that's had all kinds of ramifications. That and the speed has led to an even greater focus on the short term. 
I, I get this question from, from readers all the time. What do, you, what do you ask your guests what they do to relax or for enjoyment out of the office? Um, I play golf. Uh-huh. Um, that's the time. You're in Florida so. part of the year. Yeah. So I belong to a club down in Florida as well. Um, I used to play a lot of chess. Um, New York's a fantastic place for chess. Now I can play online. Walk right over to Washington Square Park. Yeah, and get, right, a, yeah. get embarrassed by some 12-year-old. Oh, yeah. There's some good players there. Um, I just started doing the New York Times crossword uh-huh. uh, on my, my, wife on my tablet, that. you know, and and uh, and that's a lot of fun. So, so you know, golf. It's an odd thought process. I, I find the crossword. I've never been into crosswords, and I just, hey, this is easy. I get on my tablet anyway. I'll do uh-huh. it in bed. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. I think it's good to have, it's good to... To test your brain and to and to work on new challenges. One of the ways that you just you know that you don't age as quickly as you would otherwise. It it's a different thought process. I yes. find. So I hate looking at a blank crossword. I I, I I despise them. My wife will take a hard crossword puzzle and get stuck nine tenths of the way through. I come right in. That's the easy part. Yeah, there you go. But I uh, need the blind crossword is, is terrible. I right? need you around, yeah. And you have to know geography, and I don't know the name of that river in this right, country. Right, right. But it's fascinating, and it is does keep the mind. Well, right. earlier in the week is easier. The Sunday well, crossword is Well, Monday is fabulous. Yeah. Anybody could do the Monday right, crossword right. puzzle. I used to take the train with someone who was retired, and her greatest pleasure was if she can finish the Friday New York Times crossword puzzle before the train pulls in, so I mean it's like a forty-eight oh, minute ride. Wow. That's that's she she's really happy. That's with pretty herself. good. Monday, it's before we're halfway there. Right. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, millennials and people just graduating college. What sort of advice would you give somebody who says, "Hey, I'm interested in finance"? Uh, what would you tell them? Uh, if they're interested in finance, well, the first thing is have a have a career strategy. I mean, one of the ironies I've found for myself is I've I've had more of a career strategy as I've got older. Uh-huh. But of course, the time to really develop a strategy is when you're young and you've got your whole career ahead of you. Have a strategy. Stay focused. The people who are successful pick the right goals and they stay focused on achieving those goals. I think that uh, going into finance, totally make sure you're doing things that, that are going to be demonstrably good for clients. Mm-hmm. Make sure that whatever you're doing there's a, there's a clear value add for the client and it's and it's got some meaning for the client because then it's more likely to be sustainable. And my final question, what is it that you know about investing and the world of finance today that you wish you knew 25 years ago when you were starting? I mean, I think behavioral finance is so fascinating. I mean, it explains so much more. This is something Richard Taylor talks about in Finance Misbehaving is that so much of economic theory assumes people are just these agents. Rational profit right? He calls them econs, right? right? These theoretical people. And of course, you get booms and busts and all kinds of emotion because of human activity. And really appreciating the impact of human decision-making on markets is something that I've come to appreciate much more mm-hmm. in the last five or 10 years relative to when I started out earlier on. Simon, thank you so much for being so, so generous with your time. We have been speaking to Simon Lack of SL Advisors. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch at any of the other 139 or so such previous conversations. Uh, I believe you will find most of them to be absolutely fascinating. If you want more information about Simon, uh, go to Amazon or any 
fine bookstore and you can get the hedge fund mirage wall street potholes or bonds are not forever you you publish elsewhere don't you what what Wiley. else at, uh, so if someone else wants more information about you What's the best oh, online uh, They could go to our website, sl-advisors.com, or just Google me. Just Google Simon Lack. Google Simon Lack. Um, I would be remiss if I did not thank our uh, staff. My recording engineer is Medina Parwana. Uh, Taylor Riggs uh, handles all of our booking. Charlie Vollmer is our producer, and Michael Batnick is the head of our research uh, our research team, our crack research team. Uh, we love your comment, comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to me at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Masters in Business is brought to you by Proper Cloth, the leader in men's custom shirts with proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service Ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today.